Good morning. Good to see you all on this lovely Sunday morning. I want to start by thanking you all very much for having me here today and allowing me to speak to you and be the one who gets to deliver God's message. There can really be no true, truly a better blessing. Today, we will be talking about an eight-letter word that is a million-dollar problem in the world today known as apostasy. Apostasy is a word most people don't know the meaning of. Apostasy, by definition, would be the renouncing or the backing away from one's faith or belief in our God. It is a matter most grim that faces Christians today. Those Christians having believed at one time, figuratively having salvation in the palm of their hands, now reject the grace and the gift that our God has bestowed on them. Some abandoning the teaching of Christ for one reason or another and ending their life in a lost state. Today we're going to look in the books of Philemon and Hebrews to see what the Bible says on the warnings of apostasy and its dangers. If you would, for those of you that had your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, that's where we're going to start. And if you don't have them open, please open them again. We see here that the Hebrews writer warns against allowing the things that we have heard and learned to slip from our mind and our actions. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. This is proof verbatim that these things can slip from our minds and our actions. We must keep them ready and in our minds at all times. Just as one attains a certain skill in the world and uses that skill, we often like to say, if you don't use it, you what? You lose it. Correct. This is the same thing and applies equally much, if not more so, to our faith and our strength in Christ Jesus and our knowledge of Him. Just as one exercises a muscle, we need to exercise our spirituality and our knowledge in Christ on a daily basis, or it could atrophy, it could be reduced, and we do not want that. If you would, please turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 2 and verse 20, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Here we're going to see that falling back into a life of sin after learning the truth is one of the worst states anyone can find themselves in. Here in chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, he says, For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we have to have that knowledge to be able to escape the sins of the world, they are again entangled therein and overcome. This is falling away. This is not the idea of once saved, always saved. This is showing us that you can slip from the faith. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to have not have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now what does he mean here when he says the latter end would be worse from the first? If you're lost, you're lost and you know where you're heading to. You know where you're going. One would immediately think, well, it can't get any worse than that. But what if you combine not only the punishment of a devil's hell, 
but throw in the knowledge that you knew you had it in the palm of your hand sitting in front of you, you had believed it and then turned away from that grace. Now not only do you have punishment weighing down on you, but you have the emotional pain compiled with that for all eternity, knowing that you turned your back on the one person that loved you more than anyone else ever could and gave his life for you. In Matthew 24, verses 11 through 13, we see he says, And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. There are so many people in the world now that teach, Once saved, always saved. Just just reach out to God. Say that sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. This is false doctrine. You can slip away from the faith. You can fall from grace. You can reject the gift that God has given you after you have received that knowledge, as we see in Hebrews. He continues and says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Faith without works is dead. If you have to endure, which is the word used there, then that is an action and a work if I've ever seen one. Enduring doesn't come easy. Enduring is something that you have to press forward through. It's something that we have to do of our own volition and our spirit. Those that worship Him will what? Worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is an attitude. This is in how much we love our God. We will only find salvation if we continue to endure in the faith. Another word used in this verse is iniquity. Gross or unfair behavior. Matthew warns against allowing our faith and love towards God to grow cold. This idea is further expounded if we turn our Bibles to Revelations and three Revelation three sixteen. Here he is essentially comparing hot coffee versus cold coffee, hot tea versus cold tea. I don't know about you guys, but I like hot coffee. But on times, I also like iced coffee as well. Revelations 3.16 says, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He's talking about their spirit, about their convictions in the faith. I don't know about you, but if I have the iced coffee and it has the ice in there and it's been sitting in the car, that milk starts to curdle, it starts to get watered down from the melted ice, that, it's gross. And the men in here, I'm sure, that hot cup of coffee, you don't want it lukewarm. You want it piping hot. You want it when it's good and fresh. That's the same way with our souls with God. He will spew us out of his mouth as if we've curdled, as if we've gotten nasty to his taste. We have to set our hearts ablaze for Christ and push towards that ultimate goal. God doesn't want Christians to be lukewarm, let alone cold. How much more so would he spew you out if you're cold? But how do we do this? How do we keep our hearts on fire for God? We spend time in God's Word. We get to know Him. We commit it to memory. When's the last time that we've memorized a Bible verse? Truly. I challenge everyone here today, go home today and memorize Hebrews 2.1. It's one verse. You can do it. Come back tonight and tell one of your elders or one of the deacons here that verse and see if you can repeat it. I don't think we spend enough time, not 
It's everyone in the world. We need to spend more time getting to know God's Word. His Word is a double-edged sword that'll pierce the darkest of hearts. But if we don't know it, how sharp is the blade that we have to fight against the sin out in the world? Well, what do we have to combat evil and sin with when we try to convince our friends what to do and what not to do and convince them to come to Christ if we don't have a weapon to use? You have to keep that sword sharp. It always starts with allowing your knowledge and faith to slip. And then it progresses to a hardening of the heart. You start to get hard. You start to blame God. Then it moves on to disbelief. And we're warned by the Hebrews writer that you can fall away to the point that you won't come back. And that is a terribly scary thought. To know that you can fall so far in disbelief and let the thing slip. Gradual. This doesn't happen all at once. But over the years, you start to detest Christ and you won't come back. Turn back into the book of Hebrews to chapter 12 and verse 15. I know I'm walking all over the place. I'm one of those people who can't stand still. Hebrews 12 and verse 15. He warns of this. Looking diligently. He's telling you to look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, and let any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. One of our jobs as Christians is always to be alert. Just as a watchman would be alert on duty on top of a lighthouse, he's shining that light through the darkness to see the boats incoming. We always have to be on high alert. Again, let's think of it like a lighthouse. On a stormy night, a hard time in your life, we must, amidst the crashing waves and howling winds of this life, look out with a vigilance, just like the lighthouse does. When trouble comes, God's Word acts as that light cutting through the darkness and keeping you from being harmed by the shock rocks on the shore and being plunged in the dark depths below. If we don't see the false doctrine coming, if we don't see those things coming that we can fight against with God's Word, we're going to succumb to them. Just as an enemy comes in with a surprise attack, we don't want to be taken unawares. But while we're keeping watch, we must be very careful to note that it is never due to our own power that we escape evil. If you would turn to Jeremiah 10 and verse 23. Again, speaking about the lighthouse, here you've got to think of a captain of a ship. No matter how good of a captain you think you are, God is better. God is all-knowing. He is a better captain. I'd rather be the skipper than the captain any day of the week of that boat. In Jeremiah 10, 23, he says, O Lord, I know that the ways of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. It's not in us. It's in this book. It's in what God gave us. This is our life plan, our goal, the way that we need to be pointed towards eternity. Regardless of what happens in our lives, we must be careful of the negative effects causing us to become bitter. Because that can lead us towards blaming God and ultimately rejecting Him. Should we blame God for the evil things, the bad things that happen in our lives? No, absolutely not. 
If anything, we should blame Satan. Is there anything that you read in the Bible where God did wrong to any person? No. But the world will sit out there and say, well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? He, he destroyed everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah, even the women and the children. He spared the children. Where do you think those children would have wound up had they have lived the rest of their lives in Sodom and Gomorrah? They would have been raised in sin and went their entire lives in sin, but he spared them of that. By taking them early on, I, I guarantee you, he put every single one of those children in heaven. If you think differently, you're wrong. He punishes sin. He would never punish the innocent. He spares every good living thing has, that has ever come of this world has come from Christ and came from our God. Look at Job. Job has went through more than any of us ever could understand or hope to go through. He even had his friends for several chapters berating him. They come in originally and start talking to him. Now, Job, we know you've done a good, you've been a good person, but you must have done something wrong. And when Job rebukes them for that, saying, I know of nothing that I've done wrong, they start to berate him. We know you've done something wrong. Our experience says so. They were using the limited experience of mankind. They were trying to direct their own steps. They were not allowing God to direct theirs. The word blame means to find fault with. Blaming goes beyond acknowledging God's sovereignty. Blaming God implies that he messed up. That there is fault to be found in him. When we blame God, we make ourselves his judge and jury. How dare we? How dare we think that we can judge and jury the Almighty? We're His creation. He's not ours. He's not some figment of our imagination. Isaiah 54 and verse 9 says, Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Woe unto him. We should not rail against God. We should worship and praise Him for all that He's done with us. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned us it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. I'm a clay pot that God can mold however He wishes. And I wish that He would mold me in His image. And I can do that. I can allow Him to do that by spending time in God's Word by allowing His hands to shape and mold our lives. We must remember that sin is the root of every harsh and every evil act in this world. God didn't originally make the human being to live in a world full of sin. The sin came by our own choices in the Garden of Eden. The sin, the evil doings, happened because of our evil choices and our sin now. Before we blame God for anything... We need to closely examine our own lives and be honest about the choices that we've made in life, the things we're responsible for. Because our sin has consequences, and sometimes those consequences affect those around us, the ones we love about. Sometimes those consequences affect someone we've never met before. A drunk driver sins by being drunk, by driving when he knows he shouldn't. And sometimes an innocent person can lose their lives. There are consequences that spread. It's not God's fault. Turn your Bibles to Jude 1 and verse 4, please. 
there's something else we need to be very careful of. Jude 1 and verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as it is important for us to watch and stay on guard for something that would help us to be aware, something that would help us to be aware of is those that we keep around us. We need to watch our company. Evil communications, what? Corrupt good morals, correct. Keeping ungodly men around us will lead us into sin, which we should not be taking part of. This is also stated in 1 Corinthians. If we look at 15 and verse 33, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good morals. There's the verse. But it's not enough to simply not partake in those sins. We need to rail against them. It is not the Christian's job to stand back and say, man, I, I, I respect you. You can, you do you and I do me, and as long as you don't infringe on me, I, I guess that's fine. I wish you'd come over to this side. No, that's wrong. When we see someone in wrong, we need to tell them. If you actually love that person, you will tell them that they're living in sin because you might be the only book they ever get to read. So what are you portraying on your pages? What do they get to see in your actions and your works? 2 John 1 puts it this way in verses 10 through 11. He says, Whoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Of course he doesn't. He's railing against God. He's turning his back on him. He that, ab- that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. We know this. This is great. That's good news. We keep going. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker in his evil deeds. We can't say, you do you, I'll do me, have a good day. Absolutely not. When those false doctrine preachers come and knock on your door and they want to teach you, you refuse them. Don't let them into your house. You teach them, not the other way around. He says here, receive them not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't look at them when they leave and say, have a good day, good luck at the next house. Why would you bid him good luck going to the next house spreading false doctrine? We need to think very carefully of how we react and what we say to people. That doesn't mean we have to be mean. It doesn't mean we have to have hate in our hearts. We love our brothers. We love the people out in the world. We want all men to come unto God and be saved. So we can do so in a loving and just manner. But if it comes to it, you tell them, get out of my house. I don't want to hear the false doctrine that you're spewing, and I don't want my children of all to hear it either. Because it's sinful and it's wrong. And then there's also a commandment to remain faithful unto death. 
Turn your Bibles to Philemon 1 and verse 6. Philemon 1 and verse 6. If we only communicate and share our faith, does only if we communicate and share our faith, does it become of any use to those around us? The Philemon writer puts here that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. The communication of thy faith, how do we communicate? By telephone, by speaking. It's spreading your faith to others. How do we spread that? Earlier we spoke of the faith growing cold or setting our hearts on fire for Christ. How does a fire spread? When you are out camping and you place the wood on the fire, you've got to light your little lighter and have it go. Do you simply just walk away? No, the fire's not going to start. It's going to die out. I've done it too many times. The campers in here will attest. Well, what do you do? You lean forward close to it, and you blow on it. You put some wind into your sails. You spread it. It's the same thing with us. We have to communicate our faith. We have to put it out into the world. We can't let it just sit locked away in our heart. We have to tell others of what we've heard, what we've read, and what we've learned. They may have never heard these things before. I've met people that didn't know who Noah was. They haven't heard this before. And they'll believe any doctrine that's presented to them on a widescreen format. Sadly. God wants our faith to be communicated and spread like a wildfire. If the whole church got together and went out into the world door knocking and telling people and really had evangelism as their goal, then we would be like the large wind that sweeps in from California and spreads the wildfires, taking whole forests with it. That's what we want. We want people to be set ablaze for Christ. But if we don't put it out there, they're never going to hear it. Hebrews 10 and verse 23. God is faithful in His promises. And we need to trust in that. We need to trust in Him. Hebrews 10 and verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that hath promised. Let me tell you why God is faithful. There's two main reasons. One, God cannot lie. It is an impossibility. If anything, I would say it's the only thing that's impossible for Him to do. Is He simply will not lie. And two, He swore to us on no name greater. On Himself. There is nothing greater. We need to trust God's promises. He has never failed to keep a single promise all throughout human history. If he says he's going to do something, be guaranteed he will do it. Just as one is afraid of the dark and they clutch onto that flashlight, we need to hold onto that so we can light our path where we're headed and see the pitfalls of this world in front of us. We need to hold tight onto God's Word. It's everything we have. If we're caught unaware, we, have, we hold on to the possibility that someone can take our crown from us. They can. That gradual slip, that slope, it starts with believing one thing that has been a creed or a doctrine of man. 
Let us say Bible things in Bible ways. Call things by Bible names. Where the Bible speaks, speak. Where the Bible is silent, be silent. It's a quote from a Restoration preacher, and he got it right all those years ago, and it still holds true today. Don't forsake the assembly. Just as we talked earlier of the company that we keep around ourselves, just as important as it is to not have evil communications because they corrupt good morals, what would be the inverse of that? Good communications would strengthen good morals. Do we not call this our church family? We're a family first and foremost. Look to your left, look to your right. These are your brothers and sisters. Our spiritual connection should be stronger than any earthly connection in this world. I know that we care about our blood sisters, our blood brothers, our mothers and our fathers, but when it comes down to it, we should have a closer relationship with those that we have communication with through Christ. Our fellowship with Christ, when it says fellowship one with another, that's talking vertical. The one with another isn't us. It's not going in between us. If we have fellowship one with another, with God, we don't know for sure if someone's truly obeying God, but if we're in communication with God and they're in communication with God, then you get the cross fellowship. That's how you get that. We need to have more fellowship. We need to make sure not to forsake the assemblies of God. Turn to Hebrews 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll look through verses 25 through 27. And while we're turning, I have to pose a question. Where are we Sunday morning? Where are the empty pews, the people that normally sit there? What about Sunday evening? Moreover, what about Wednesday night Bible study? Where are we? Are we forsaking the assembly? Are we not showing up the way that we should? Let's look at this verse together. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. If you see bad times approaching, you have even more reason to be here. We need to be exhorted by our family. We need to be built up by our brothers and sisters in Christ. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment of fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. If we want to stay strong in Christ, we need to be here. I heard a very wise man tell me not too long ago that those that who are afraid of hell come on Sunday mornings. Those that love the preacher tend to come on Sunday nights, but those that love God come on Wednesday too. What is your purpose for being in this assembly? Are we just checking that box? Are we just here to say, I went through the motions, I'm going to heaven? Or is your spirit in it? Is your heart ablaze for God? Do we want to spread that fire as the Olympic runner runs with the torch, passing that fire on to another and feeling victorious as we see the next runner taking off in a mad sprint to the next person? 
That's what we should long for, to spread His Word. But there's a danger if we do not spend time in God's Word, if we listen to false teachers, and if we forsake the assembly, the grouping of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that'll slip. And it doesn't take long. Don't fall into that, please. We love you. We want to see you go to heaven with us, and we want to spend eternity with you. Let's make our family larger. Every person that we bring in that obeys the gospel and follows what Christ taught is going to be a family member for eternity, not just this life. Remaining faithful to God requires commitment, diligence, perseverance, and unwavering faith. By paying close attention to our lives through God's Word, we can effectively guard against the sin that is known as apostasy, the falling away, the renouncing of one's faith and belief. Romans 10, 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. They have to hear it. Who's going to speak it? Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. How are they going to believe what they haven't heard? When's the last time you told your waiter or waitress about God? When's the last time you passed a pamphlet to a friend, invited him for a Bible study? I get it, it's a scary thought. You don't want to push away your friends, but if you love them and you say you love them and you mean it, we have to present that to them because they're in a lost state. Acts 17.30 says, And at the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. If they don't turn away from that sin, they're going to fall back into it. They're never going to leave the world. They're not going to come to the faith. We have to repent of the way that we lived before. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We have to be willing to to confess that Christ is our God. Not just when we're about to get into the water being baptized. We have to be able to say it out in the world. We have to be willing to confess that even if there's a gun put to our head one of these days. And I pray it doesn't happen in this country. But it could. And finally, Peter said unto them in Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We have to put Christ on through baptism. We have a watery burial that we have to go through in able to obtain that salvation. We have to allow our old sinful self to die in that watery grave and come up as a new creature, or there is no hope of being saved. In fact, if you look, there is not a single conversion account in the entire Bible. Nowhere can you see anyone sprinkling or simply saying a sinner's prayer. Every one of them. Look at the eunuch. Here is much water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? 
Let's look at the Greek word, baptizo. It means immersion, completely. And every time it's talked about, it's talked about as a burial. We have to put on Christ. It's hard. I get it. We love you. Let us help you. If you have any need today, if you haven't attended the way you should, if you want to put on Christ in baptism, maybe you simply want a prayer for a friend. The strength and the courage needed to get up and spread that to your friends out in the world. Let us pray for you. Let us help. Again, we are your good communication. We are your family. There is nothing to be ashamed about of coming up here and sitting in the front pew. Back in the days of the Restoration, they wouldn't have an invitation song. If you felt like you needed it, you simply came forward and asked for it. But we find it convenient to have an invitation song. So if you have a need today for anything, please come as we stand and as we sing.